turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to look at a uh, somewhat familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, I say somewhat familiar. Uh, it's in the Scriptures and it's been there. Uh, it may be one that you uh, have come across, and, or then again, it may not be one, and you're thinking, has this recently been added to my Bible? Uh, and if you think that, it has not. Uh, it is there in uh, the earliest manuscripts that we have. So, um, But I do want to draw our attention to it. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And what we're going to be studying, kind of launching out with this week, and uh, we'll continue to see it kind of spelled out in a more clear way in an actual test case, if you will, next week with Nicodemus, is a study on genuine faith. Uh, and that's what our aim in, in uh, teachers, the teachers of the Bible, is to aid individuals with that. As we have membership interviews, <coughs> excuse me, we want to, in, as much as we can, we want to ensure genuine faith. We, we want to have conversations with individuals, membership discussions with them, go over their testimony, not in any way that we are the judge. Uh, ultimately, we will uh, stand before the Lord one day and um, hear one of two uh, responses from him, either well done, my good and faithful servant, as we'll study uh, later on today, or uh, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so uh, we're by no means... A, a, God himself and, and our attempts to believe we are, uh, but our attempt as shepherds is to try to protect you, uh, that there's obvious areas where there is there's lack or there's want or there's a lack of assurance, lack of uh, understanding. We want to try to aid uh, you in that clarity. And so this is a, uh, a can be an encouraging passage or it can be an unbelievably unsettling or uh, difficult passage to be able to walk through. Uh, but that's the in, Tent of it. This is why uh, John has written. If you remember, as we've studied before, we've, we're not there. We will not be there for many months uh, as we're walking through John. But at the end of John, chapter twenty, uh, verse thirty, thirty-one, it says the purpose of the book, the purpose of this gospel. John the apostle, in his writing this gospel, he says, "Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs, these things that are written." are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so we want he, John's attempt to set forth uh, an argument, if you will, understanding, clarity, witnesses, testimonies, uh, to be able to communicate uh, the truth of who Christ is. And uh, as a result of that, the people believing in Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and by believing in his name, they may have eternal life. And this is what we would want uh, to teach this morning. It's what we would desire to encourage others to know and to be encouraged by. And so when you think about that, we don't want anyone to be deceived. And if, you, if you've ever been deceived, it's not something that you enjoy. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know if you've maybe uh, or, or never read the fine print in a certain contract that you were in, and all of a sudden you realize it wasn't, you didn't actually sign up for what you thought you signed up for, or maybe you had studied, uh, and, and part of your studying, you began to, you studied something in, inaccurately or you studied something that wasn't exactly the way you should have and you repeated that step over and over and over again and where you thought, man, you absolutely aced the test, you get the test back and you fail it, right? Because you've repeated an error over and over and over and over again, right? And I know in those times, in, in, those times, in my own life, uh, it just makes you feel sick, Right? But in those, yes, in this life, you may lose money. In this life, you may uh, lose uh, some, um, might hinder your pride in some way. You may not be able to win valedictorian or whatever you might have been aspiring for, competition within your family, uh, attempt to please your parents uh, if that was your goal and what you were striving for uh, with your grades. But ultimately, those are short-lived, right? They're not eternal. And one of the things that we would, would warrant uh, we would welcome you to be thinking through, we would warn you about, is that you would not be self-deceived as it relates to eternity because that's not temporal, it's eternal. And this is exactly what uh, John the Apostle is writing here to help us to be able to see. So let me give you a little backdrop. We'll read then John chapter 2, 23, 2, 24, and 25. So three verses of Scripture. And if you're like my son, just moments ago, he said, Dad, he asked me to lean down and he whispered in my ear, he says, please don't take long. And so... Uh, uh, I will do my best, uh, but ultimately three verses of scripture, but they're, they're powerful verses. And so, uh, and, uh, verses that aren't covered m most often. 
And so I want to do my best to explain them. And yes, at the same time, to not go so long. All right? So that's my attempt this morning to preach faithfully and concisely. Right? So that's our goal. So John starts off this gospel, and he, uh, John the Apostle himself is the one who's writing, and he begins with his own eyewitness testimony in verses 1 through 18, that Jesus is the eternal word of God, that was God and is God and was with God in the beginning, and he's the one who created it, and he was the one who gave light and life to all men. And ultimately, he came into this world, took on human flesh, tabernacled with man, and that he was the, uh, the very representation of God the Father himself. He revealed or exegeted. He was the one who preached, if you will, both in, in word and indeed in his in very personhood, uh, God, the eternal Godhead there before mankind. And then he begins to share a second testimony, that in verse, chapter 1, verses 19 and following, that of John the Baptist, and how John the Baptist was then testifying that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And then he begins to share about the disciples. And those disciples that were with John the Baptist begin to leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus Christ and begin to walk with him and to talk with him and begin to pursue him uh, as the Messiah. And they, they now become convinced by interacting with him. And so they begin to go and grab other disciples. And Simon grabs, um, grabs um, I'm sorry, Andrew grabs his brother Simon. And then uh, Philip grabs uh, Andrew uh, I mean, Philip grabs Nathaniel and brings him into the mix. And so then you begin to see that uh, this ministry is beginning to take off. And so then you begin to see the very first of Jesus' signs there in uh, Cana and Galilee and where he turns the water into wine. And that even though there was a massive miracle that had transpired there, that very many aren't aware of that it even took place, which gives uh, credence to the fact that, that uh, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They didn't even understand what was taking place, that miracles could be taking place around them and you wouldn't really be aware of it. This is what seems like the case in verse chapter 2, verse 11. These are the first the signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Where you begin to think, well, why didn't everyone just believe in him? The reality was that uh, miracles can take place, and yet it doesn't mean that it establishes genuine faith. And so then genu- uh, from that, Jesus then makes his way to the Passover in Jerusalem, and he begins to cleanse the temple, uh, which is a pretty phenomenal thing to be able to think that this one man could cleanse this, this uh, cleanse the temple with as many people that could be uh, uh, there at the temple at this particular time. Gives a sign, it foreshadows his own uh, death and resurrection, uh, by communicating the sign that he would do or what authority he was doing it was that they were going to destroy the temple and he would raise it up in three days, not speaking of the physical temple there, uh, the brick-and-mortar temple, if you will, but speaking of his own body. And that as a result of that, the disciples, when he was raised from dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And then there's these three verses that are... Attach what had just transpired to the story of Nicodemus and the new birth, which we'll talk about next week. And these three verses are extremely powerful. I want us to read those, and then we'll dive into our discussion about genuine faith. Listen to what transpires here. John chapter 2, beginning verse 23. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So clearly he was performing signs uh, that likened itself to the very first sign that he uh, had did at Cana in Galilee. And we know that um, uh, John's not going to list all of them. Once again, going back to uh, what I had read earlier about the purpose of the book, it says now uh, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. And so ultimately that there's a variety of other signs. And we don't know what those signs were that he did in Jerusalem, but clearly he was doing signs. And, and more than one, because uh, it says that there was multiple signs that he was doing. And as a result of that, when people saw those signs that he was doing, they believed in his name. But then here's what's interesting, verse 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to understand what the author's intent, what John the Apostle's intent was to communicate to us. That eternal truth could ring true in our ears and in our hearts that we'd be able to understand with clarity what it is that the author's intending to communicate. The reason we desire that, Lord, is that we know your word says that these authors 
these writers of the Bible were inspired by you to pen these words. And so those words are not simply uh, written by them only, but Lord, in conjunction with your Holy Spirit, it was working through them. And then, Lord, you've preserved this word for centuries to even allow it to come in our own language where we could study it and study it freely this morning uh, to study it together. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would take your word and would lead us to guide us, would enable us to understand the very essence of what you want us to learn. And that, Lord, as a result of that, that no one under the hearing of my voice would be deceived. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just want to take a few moments and just go through this relatively briskly and relatively quickly. I know that we won't be able to exhaust every aspect and nuance of this particular passage. But I do want to take some time to navigate through this because I believe it's extremely helpful to us as we're thinking through genuine faith. And so I want us just to take this passage, walk through it carefully, uh, and uh, from that, be able to glean some truths that will be helpful for you, for my, myself, and then for those that we're going to come in contact with. So uh, my, whether it's your own individual family members, extended family members, coworkers, neighbors, that God would allow you to inter- interact with, that we would be able to uh, share truth with them and hopefully share what we learned this morning. So First thing I want us to see is the appearance of genuine saving faith in Jesus. There can be an appearance of genuine saving faith in Jesus. Especially, uh, take our own culture and take uh, here in the South where uh, uh, church attendance is uh, a cultural thing, maybe even more so than a spiritual thing that we do, uh, that where we go to college football, high school football games on Friday, college football games on Saturday at church, and then we watch pro football games on Sunday. That's kind of what we do in the South. And so from that, we can party very hard on Saturday and then get right with God on Sunday. There's songs written about this. It's culturally, we all understand this can be the case. And so in this, you're seeing something similar transpiring in this text. There is an appearance where individuals are professing and communicating a trust in Christ that is not a genuine saving faith. And this is where it says in verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so at first glance, that seems like a really, really great thing. Is that not why he would be performing signs and and performing a variety of signs and wonders amongst the people? But the reality is is it's, it's only an appearance of saving faith, genuine saving faith, and not the reality of it. And so we can learn some things about this that I think can be helpful to us and our, as we examine our own hearts, which the Bible would encourage us to do, and as we desire to help other people, that there can be an appearance of saving faith without a, re, a genuine reality of it. And a few things we can learn is, one, as we're thinking about this appearance of it, that many people believe in the reality of Jesus, Right? Many people believe in the reality of Jesus. Those that were there in the first century that saw him doing these signs did not question whether or not Jesus was real. They could walk over to him and they could physically put their hands upon him and they were physically seeing the miracles that he was performing, the signs that he was performing. It says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this was a real life event with real people with many eyewitnesses that were trans that were taking place if you just go back to the preceding passage right when he walks into the the temple and begins to cleanse the temple there would be thousands potentially tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands that would be in that in that area around that temple that particular day that would have would could have uh, been a part of jesus cleansing the temple whether directly or indirectly impacted by Jesus' cleansing of the temple, that there's no question that there, there is a real Jesus. And so from that, people will be like, no, 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 I, I believe today in our particular time that people believe they have genuine saving faith. And there can be even the appearance of genuine saving faith because they would say, no, I believe there really was a Jesus of Nazareth and he was born of Mary and he lived and uh, the, the turn of this, uh, the, the, uh, the change of the millennium, if you will, that uh, uh, three to four A.D., this is when Jesus came into the earth. I, I believe all those things. And he lived 33 years and he died upon the cross. I understand the reality of Jesus. But is that enough for genuine saving faith? Just as there's a reality of a man that lived on the planet. 
Second thing is that many people believe in the person of Jesus. You think, well, how is that different than the reality of Jesus? Well, I mean in the person of Jesus as it relates to his title or, or the purpose of his coming to earth. And then in that, the people can begin to see and believe that I believe he is a great prophet. And there's a variety of denominations, a variety of cults that would, and I would say probably not just denominations, but primarily cults that would just say Jesus was a prophet and a very good prophet. Or some variety of people who believe in Jesus, that he was a good moral person. And as a result of that, they are attracted to him. And man, I really should be living like he lives. I don't know if you've ever spent time with somebody that uh, their behavior or their conduct is, is one that you look at and you, you aspire to live as they live. Maybe you aspire to, to want to be like them. Maybe they're, they seem to be kind or maybe they are very healthy or maybe they work out or they exercise or they eat right or, or they live in a certain way that you, that you gravitate towards. You say, man, that's just not like me and it's an area where I really need to work on. And so you, you believe in the type of person that they are. And in this, he says that many people believed in his name. Maybe they truly did believe that he was the son of God in some way, right? Maybe they believed he was a prophet in some way. Maybe his name is attached to being uh, synonymous with the Messiah, that he was going to be the Christ. And so as a result of the anointed one, and so as a result of that, they believe in that, in this person. Not in... in, in all senses, but in a sense that would be, be benefit them, right? Well, clearly, we've been longing for the Messiah to arrive so that we would not be under the, the, uh, the, the realm of Rome. We would be, we'd be given freedom and deliverance from Rome. And then many believe, people believed in the works of Jesus. It says, many believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. Signs that he was doing. And so you'll constantly see as we go through the gospel according to John. Is that there will be individuals who will constantly be asking for signs. Why? Show us then a sign. Even going back to the previous section that Pastor Tim preached last week in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Give us proof of who you are. Show us a sign. As you'll move to John chapter 5 where he feeds 5,000. And you believe it was just simply 5,000 men. And that there were a lot more in addition to that with women and children that would have been present. And that from that they would continually wanted him to perform signs. And so they believed in him in, in that way. But not in a, in a genuine way. But in a way that, would, that uh, would be attracted to him. And if we think about this. This is not something that's foreign to us today. Clearly, we believe that there is individuals who believe in the reality of Jesus today, right? As I alluded to earlier, there today, many people believe in the person of Jesus in a general way, that he is a good moral teacher, that he was a prophet of some sort, that ultimately that he had a character in a life that we all should uh, aspire to live like, and that uh, very much the Sermon on the Mount, that we should turn the other cheek, and that we should, if someone desires our, our cloak, we should give them the tunic also, and ultimately that... Uh, they ask us to go a mile, that we go above and beyond, that we go two miles with them. That we would not want to commit adultery or even to lust in our heart after someone. We would not want to murder, much less have hatred in our, to- our heart toward someone else. That we should be humble and that we should be poor in spirit and, and we should be peacemakers. And so we can look at a variety of ways that we look to Jesus and his person, the type of person that he is. And we say, man, we should aspire to be that way. I really should do better. And then they begin to look at, I clearly can't explain all the reasons how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that he fulfilled, the works that he was able to carry out. I don't quite understand it. And so I don't want to, by any way, communicate that he wasn't God. But in reality of our lives, does it change us at all? Does it really matter in our day-to-day living how we think of Christ in light of eternity, how we think of Christ and our day to day activities. The movies that we watch, the TV shows that we engage with, the conversations that we have, the actions that we have with 
with the individuals that we run with, with our spouse or with our, our, our fiancés or with our, our boyfriends or our girlfriends, or the, the ways that we behave at work, the way we behave at school, the way we behave in this, with our neighbors and with those that we run with on a day-to-day basis doesn't impact us at all. That you can believe each of these things, the reality of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the very works of Jesus. And yes, in certain ways, and with certain ways, uh, times that you sit down and you contemplate the very work and person and reality of Christ, that you, you be impacted by that, but not in a way that you functionally are made different. And this is exactly what Jesus knows about those who are in the crowd. Those who were there in Jerusalem, those who were there at the Passover, those who believed not only in, uh, in a general way of his reality, but in his, his name, in his person, and in the works he was doing when they saw the signs that he was doing at that particular time. And so there was an appearance of genuine faith uh, in Jesus, but it wasn't enough, as we'll see in point number two. Though there was an appearance of genuine saving faith in Jesus, there was the absence of genuine saving faith as revealed by Jesus himself. Oh, it appeared to be true. It was actually an absence of genuine saving faith. And by none other than the one who matters most, Christ himself. And this is where you get the odd response that uh, I alluded to earlier that you may or may not be familiar with. Verse 24 and 25. Despite the fact they said they believed in his name, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now this is extremely troubling, is it not? How can individuals believe in Jesus and yet not believe in Jesus? And I think this is true when we begin to think that maybe sometimes how careless we are with how we communicate about things. It's a matter of Believing in Jesus, when there's the word belief can mean much deeper, mean much more than what we typically might communicate, right? That I I believe this, or I believe that, or I believe in this, or I believe in that. And there can be a variety of different, even in our English grammar, uh, our English understanding of how we begin to talk to or talk about our belief systems. But in this particular case, we know this is true because the Bible says even the demons believe and tremble. Right? In James chapter 2. So the demons believe in some way, in certain, some sense, right? But then we, here do we, what do we know about demons? The Bible would communicate that hell is for Satan and his demons. Right? So we know that they're not going to be in heaven, but yet they believe in Jesus in some way. And what we understand is they absolutely believe in the reality of Jesus. They believe in the works of Jesus. They believe in the person of Jesus. But they do not entrust themselves fully to him. They've not been transformed or changed by this knowledge. And this is what's very true. This is what the parable of the soils talks about, right? The sower went out to sow and he scattered seed in the field and a variety of uh, areas of the field begin to talk about the different types of human hearts. So Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, Luke chapter 8 is going to unpack this parable that Jesus gave. And in this it says, how would you not understand all parables if you don't understand this parable, Mark says. And so it should be important to us. Ultimately, the seed would be the word of God. The sower would be anyone who carries that word, whether it be Jesus himself sharing the word or any other believer who shares the word of God. And they share it. And it falls upon different human hearts. And there now, uh, there's metaphors there to speak about the types of different hearts. It would be the, way, the path. And this would be the part where it's not been tilled up. It's not been prepared. And so as a result of that, it's hard. And the seed just lands on the top of the ground. It does not, uh, it's not been planted in the ground. And the soil's not been prepared. And as a result of that, the birds come and they take it away. And the, the illustration that Jesus gives, the meaning behind that is those are those who, who hear the word of God, do not embrace it, and Satan comes and takes it away. This is the types of things that can happen that the sermon can be preached and you, you begin to sense some conviction while you're in the service and you continue to suppress it and suppress it and suppress it. And by the time you can get out these double doors to the glass for you or even into your car, it's gone. It's gone. And it shows a heart that's not been prepared. And there's the rocky ground or the ground that with the rock. And the picture here would be that there was a uh, the person has tilled up the soil, attempted to, the farmers tried to prepare the ground, 
But deeper than his plow could go, there was a bedrock that was underneath it. So it wasn't just simply just uh, a variety of rocks in that. My family and I have a relatively large garden. And as a result of that, we try to uh, do our best to be decent farmers. And we clearly don't do that for a living, but we uh, would like to provide for our family. So as a result of that, constantly we're getting the rocks out of our garden. And so this is not the picture here is of a lazy farmer who doesn't want to protect his, uh, his crops here. It's simply communicating there was a, only a small level of uh, soil that had been tilled up. And underneath that, it could not get to the, the uh, more nutrients, more water. And so as a result of that rock that was underneath it, he was not aware was there. Ultimately from there, the, the, the plant springs up, has, looks like tremendous life, but over the course of the summer, scorching heat destroys the plant. Because why? It says it has no root system in and of itself. It can't get the water it needs and eventually perishes. does not produce fruit. And this is the picture of those who would believe. And with joy, they hear the word of God. They immediately be- believe for a season. It seems that there's life in them and they're springing up and that they love Jesus. And this is a many of the testimony for people who go to camps or revivals or a variety of other things where they're hearing lots of the word of God, lots of, of, of preaching of the word of God. And they're falling into conviction again and again and again. And they say, yes, I, I want that. But then when persecution or trials or times of testing happens, that's as a result of the word itself, as a result of living righteous, uh, an attempt to live a righteous life in and of their own strength, mind you, but they think it's under the power of the Holy Spirit, that over time, it, it, uh, that persecution says, hey, it's just not worth it any longer. And they walk away. Not demonstrating that they were saved and now are no longer saved, just proving, as John chapter 2 says, they were never saved. They went out from us to demonstrate that they were not of us. Is what John, or First John two says, and so that would be the, the, the seed that fell among among the rocks or amongst the rocks, and then you have the thorny ground, very similar to the rocky ground. The seed uh, hits a, a uh, 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 soil that had been prepared, and that uh, ultimately from that it springs up and it looks like it has life. But it says, but the cares of this world, the cares for riches, deceitfulness of riches, and the cares for just a variety of other things choke it out. I don't reject Christ, but I'm not willing to repent of sin. And so as a result, I want those two things to coexist. And the Bible is very clear. You cannot serve two masters. You either hate the one or love the other, or you'll love the one and hate the other, but you can't serve two people. So what James says, that you should not be double-minded. And so here's the picture here, that ultimately the cares of this world choke it out. And then lastly, it says those who, the only genuine believer in the story was those that falls amongst the good soil, the human heart that's been prepared by the Holy Spirit receives the seed, and as a result, not only springs up, but endures, and it becomes mature and produces fruit, some 30, 60, and 100-fold. This is how we need to understand genuine belief. Not that individuals that can see works or believe in the reality and the person and the works of Jesus and for a season just embrace Christ, but when persecution or tribulation or times of testing come, they fall away. That's not a genuine believer. Or over a course of time, they, they want Jesus because why? They've been told by preachers of a variety of sorts that ultimately if I believe in Jesus, then I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. Right? And I remain to be blessed and I'll receive blessings all over the place. And I continue to receive blessings everywhere. And they don't have any, they don't have a category for persecution. They don't have a category uh, for denying themselves. They don't have a category for hatred of sin. Not hatred of people, but hatred of sin that all people uh, perform and possess. And so as a result of that, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, choke out God's word. Because why? They were simply, as we'll see in this passage and continually through John, were coming to Jesus for their own selfish desires. And so Jesus begins to say to them, I'm not going to entrust myself to them. And here's really kind of a play on words. If you begin to see in verse 23, it says, many believed in his name. And so there's a Greek word there that uh, it comes from the same root word as that word believe there as it does in trust here. So basically it's saying that many believed in his name, but then Jesus on his part did not believe in them. He didn't entrust himself to them because why? He didn't believe in them. He knew that their faith was superficial. And so that's what you see in your, your notes here. Jesus did not believe in the superficial faith of man. That's why I said Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And that's where we see in this text. Number one, Jesus knows all people. 
in this room, at this hour, and all throughout human history, the creator of the universe knows you. You pay attention to anything the Bible says, it says there's not even a sparrow falls to the ground that, that Jesus doesn't, it doesn't, isn't allowed that to happen and is fully and keenly aware of that. Not even one that would be killed and falls to the ground. He's the very one who feeds the sparrows, it says. He's the one who knows the very hairs on your head. So not only does he know that you're here, know, here on this planet, doesn't know that you're alive, but he's the one who knit you in the womb, as the Psalms would say. And so Jesus knows every one of us, knows what's happened to you, what you've gone through, what you're currently or presently going through, and what you're going to go through. Keenly aware. Because he knows all people. And Jesus does not need additional information about people. Right? He doesn't need eyewitness testimonies about others. It says and you needed no one to bear witness about man. He knows all people and he doesn't need anyone to give him information about anyone. He doesn't need more information. I know a variety of times as even as a pastor, you know, a lot of things can be said of, of myself or of pastors in general. Uh, there can be gossip or slander or a variety of other means that can be had. And, and sometimes you want to kind of defend yourself and you're just like, well, I just wish they knew more of the story. But guess what? Jesus doesn't need to know more of your story as if he's heard things about you, good or bad, and he's just believed the press releases about you. He knows the things that you know and no one else knows. And the things that you pray you go to the grave with because you would be utterly embarrassed if they, other people knew about these things that only you know. Guess what? Jesus doesn't need an eyewitness to tell him these things. He knows them already. He knows the secret things that you do that are good. Matthew chapter 10 says, the cup of cold water that you give, and you're not trying to record yourself, upload it on Instagram. I'm about to give a cup of cold water right now. Hashtag gracious, right? Hanging out with all these pastors, hashtag blessed, right? He doesn't, he doesn't need any of this information, the stuff that we post on social media. He doesn't need the information that we have. That, hey, if only more of this information, it would put me in a more positive light. So it says here in this particular passage, he needed no one to bear witness about any man. Because why? The third point here, Jesus knows what is in man. And not simply men as far as the male uh, species, uh, the male gender, not female. It means all of mankind. He knows you. He needs no additional witness or testimony about you. And he knows what's even in you. As we go through the Gospel of John, you're going to continue to see that Jesus, as individuals are talking, Jesus perceives, Jesus understands, Jesus knows what they think and what they're saying, even when they're trying to keep it from him. He knows when they're testing him. When they're setting him up. That he never walked in any situation uncertain or unsure. That should cause us to be sober minded. Not scared. But sober minded this morning is that we will not and we cannot deceive Christ. Cannot and will not. So we're talking about us being self-deceived. Christ himself was not self-deceived. And he was not deceived by others. Where we can be deceived by others. And so Jesus begins to communicate to them, I'm not, I don't believe in your testimonies about me. I understand what you're, you're saying, but I know you better than you know you. And I don't buy it. Now that could seem harsh. That could seem harsh. But it's not. What would be more unloving is to play the game that we play in the South. I know you're not okay. I know you're not in a good situation. But I'm going to put on a happy face. And you put on a happy face. And we're all going to pretend that we're in the right place. And this can happen, right? This can happen to where we 
communicate, and we share, and we encourage. And then it's just like, hey, well, no one wants to speak up. No one's going to, let's not rock the boat. And as a result of this, it's a dangerous place to be because if we really do believe, and it's an if, but if we really do believe, the Bible is what it says it is. It is the words of God, like His revelation to man to prepare us to know Him and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent, which He defines in John chapter 17, th- verse 3, and we'll study in a few weeks to come, is eternal life. If it's to know Him, God, and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent, then we need not be deceived. And He welcomes any to come to be a disciple who genuinely wants Him and is willing to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him. Jesus did give explanation to the parables, but not to the masses who really didn't want Him, but wanted the stuff that He provided for them. He spoke in parables. And yet for those who love him, who had genuine faith and not superficial faith, he would communicate and reveal more of himself and more of God the Father. And so the absence of genuine saving faith as revealed by, uh, there's an absence of genuine saving faith as revealed by Jesus. Jesus does not believe in their superficial faith of man, and Jesus is the ultimate and final authority of man. He is the ultimate and final authority of man. In our home, we're reading through a book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. It speaks of codependency, peer pressure, desire to, uh, the fear of man, wonders what others think of us, and we spend our whole lives trying to position ourselves, to put ourselves in in a place that other people will like us. Other people will accept us. And the reality in this is, when we come to terms that the one, the one testimony that absolutely matters the most already knows us, all the ugly things, all the sinful things, all the wicked things, all the things that we probably would be rejected by spouses and friends and family members and everything, if they really knew the things I thought about them, they really knew the things I've done, they really knew the things that were just out on the table, I don't know if anybody would love me. And it's, it's in that understanding that Jesus went to the cross. And yet while we were sinners... Christ died for the popular, the ones who have all the likes, all these followers on social media, where we only put the best things about ourselves. No, Christ died for the ungodly, those that don't think of God in their day-to-day activities. Not so that they could continue to abuse this grace, but that by that grace they may be saved. And so Jesus is the ultimate and the final authority of man. It's his testimony about us that's what matters. Let me give you two verses just to think about. One we're going to study in more depth here momentarily. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, you have a scary verse. Sobering verse. Matthew seven twenty-three, And then I will declare to them, Jesus preached, and this is his part of his Sermon on the Mount. He preached repeatedly. He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These were people who were religious, who had a variety of works. They had orthodoxy, if you will. They were always confessing Christ as Lord and not simply Savior. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. This could not tie together more with our sermon this, this morning better. They're saying, you're Lord. You're the Lord of our lives. We follow you. We know you. We believe in your your reality of who you are, the person of who you are, and your works. We believe in all of that. You are Lord of our lives. And not just Lord, you're Lord, Lord. Emphasis given. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never was intimate with you. I never entrusted myself to you. Why? Because you are those who are workers. Present tense. The moment they die, they were, they were 
engaging in lawlessness, sin and transgressions. And he says, you just came right out of lawlessness into my presence. To be judged. Do you not know I know everything? I know all men. I know everyone who's ever lived. I am their creator. I need no one to bear witness about you. Because why? I know even what you think. Much less what you do. I know everything. And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the picture of what's taking place in this passage here in Jerusalem at this very first Passover after his ministry has begun. None of us want to hear that, do we? But then there's Matthew 25, verse 21. And this is the verse we all would love to hear. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The whole illustration there is to be a picture of heaven. Enter the joy of heaven. Enter the joy of my presence where I dwell. Yes, why this short amount of time you're on earth, this little that's been given to you, you were faithful over it. And now you're going to be given much. You're going to have all of the blessings, all of the benefits, all of the joy of my presence here in heaven. And so that's the absence of genuine faith as revealed by Jesus. Now let's look at the admonition of self-deception as it relates to genuine faith, genuine saving faith in Jesus. The admonition or warnings, what that means. The admonition or warning of self-deception as it relates to the genuine saving faith in Jesus. So Jesus has been walking through this time in him, his very first Passover, not of all time. He had been to numerous Passovers, probably every, every year as he, since he was born, 30 Passovers, probably his 30th Passover that he's attended, right? But ultimately in this, this is the first one now that his ministry has fully began. And he's performing all these signs and all these works, all these wonders, and people were beginning to be attracted to him. So much so that people begin to put their faith in him. And I alluded to this, and we're going to explain more, but I just want you to be able to see that this is kind of a summary of coming out from what he had just done by cleansing the temple. He's drawing attention to himself. He's performed a miracle at Cana, and now ultimately he's performing all these signs, and so it's drawing attention to himself. Now, many have already communicated things about him, right? Cleansing the temple, you'll see at the very end of his ministry, he's going to cleanse the temple again. Right before he goes to the cross, there'll be a second cleansing of the temple. And you're going to hear people say, and they're going to quote even from this very first temple cleansing of things that Jesus had said. And so this wasn't news. The word had gotten out. The word begins to be communicated. And so this is not, this isn't just that it happened and just a few people have seen it. There's, this was a massive uh, time. And so the you're going to continue to see there's more and more information, more and more words going out. The, the, remember, the delegation had been sent to John the Baptist, and what did John the Baptist say? I'm not the Christ. I'm not him. There's one who dwells among you. He's here. He's here. You need to pay attention to him. And these scribes and Pharisees, the religious uh, sect of that particular time, they're aware of who he is, and yet they do not believe. They've seen all the miracles he's done, and they do not believe. They believe in a general sense. They believe in the reality of who he is, the person of who he is, the works that they've seen. But they, like demons, will not submit to him. And this is exactly what you see in John chapter 3. Look at John 3, 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come for God, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this is going to be a, very, it's a clear representation of what was just taught in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, is Nicodemus himself. Hey, I believe something about you. I believe you're here. I believe you're a real person who many people are claiming to be God. He would, be, he would have knew the testimony of John the Baptist. Why? It was from this group that he was a part of that sent the word or sent the delegation to John the Baptist. So he wouldn't be shocked. Hey, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited, uh, anointed one that we've been waiting for. And yet he comes at night. He doesn't want to be seen. You're something special. 
Tell me a little bit more about you. I'm just interested. Can you do something for me? And Jesus has none of that. We'll talk about that next week. He's going to tell him, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Something happens to you. And this is the picture here. So there's a warning about self-deception. We can believe things about Jesus and not know the Jesus that will save us. So listen to that. Turn, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I'm, we're not going to be back in John, so make your way over to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment. Matthew 7. I'm going to read this passage. I want to just talk about Jesus warning others about this very self-deception. Now, there's only three verses, so I'll, I want to try to make this a little more robust for us to be able to understand it, because if you're here and you're listening, um, I don't want you leaving out of here. I mean, everybody baby guests that were visiting their, their families or, or mothers. And so as a result of that, I want to make sure that we... we and bring clarity to this passage, not simply scare you, but actually bring some word that would encourage you. But we need to know the danger of this. And so Matthew chapter 7 begins to teach us uh, that Jesus had been teaching this type of message over and over and over. What he's doing here in John chapter 2 isn't just an attempt to be unkind. It's very much a a kind thing to do. It's very much a, a reality to show there is distinction between a genuine follower of me and just a nominal follower of mine. And so he warns them. And so listen to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Matthew 7 21, we'll read through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Jesus speaking here, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Sounds exactly like what? Nicodemus, does it not? You must be a teacher, come from God. People can't do the things that you do. Not everyone who says to me, you're a great teacher, you're my master, you're my Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because what did he tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. You'll not enter it, nor even see it. You won't even see the kingdom, much less enter it, if you're not born from above. Not everyone, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is what when we talked about just moments ago, the ultimate and final authority of Jesus, that he might and will say that to, what does it say here? Many. Many. And so there's a, an administrator's warning that we, that you and I can be self-deceived as it relates to genuine saving faith in Jesus. And so in your notes here, then genuine faith is more than intellectual knowledge. More than intellectual knowledge. Not everyone who says to me, Lord. Clearly they understood intellectually that Jesus should be Lord of your life. Hey, that's better than most Southern Baptists, might I add. Most Southern Baptists want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want Him as Lord. They at least knew that He should be Lord. And if He's going to be Lord, that's the only way He could be potentially your Savior. You don't believe that? Romans chapter 10 says, If you confess me as Lord and believe that that I've been raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Can't be saved without a Savior, right? Can't be saved without your Savior is not also your Lord. You've turned from sin and He's now Lord of your life. And so this is exactly what's transpired in this passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Well, this is exactly what they were saying. They believed in His name, right? Because of the works that they saw Him do. And so they had intellectual knowledge of Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. So genuine faith is more than intellectual knowledge. So these don't either affirm nor deny genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith does include intellectual knowledge, but it doesn't ensure that it's that. And so it neither confirms nor denies genuine saving faith. And so people can have intellectual knowledge and not be genuinely saved. Genuine faith, then number two, is more than a one-time profession. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So at some point, these individuals, whether it's right then at that particular moment or not, maybe it's a previous time in their past, that at some point in their life, they said, yes, yes, I want to follow him as Lord. Yes, I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. But you got to remember, remember the backdrop? How will you not understand all the parables if you don't understand this one? Right? That there's potentially three out of four different types of soils and only one of the four are genuine Believers. And so a one-time profession doesn't mean anything. I have family members. I've seen their baptism photos. Both when they were really, really young. Both of these individuals have walked years and years and decades upon decades 
of unfaithfulness to God. And yet in conversation, communication, they would say that Jesus loves them. And I would say, sure, no one comes to faith in Christ apart from the love of God and the love of Christ. But my question to you is, do you love Jesus? And so genuine faith is more than intellectual knowledge and a one-time profession. Genuine faith is more than assurance of salvation. You talk to individuals about their salvation experience. can be completely unfounded, but they're not uncertain. You think, that's not true. Have you ever talked to a Mormon? Do they question really whether or not they're going to go to hell when they die? Jehovah's Witness. Many of these don't even believe there's a hell. And so what, what are they, they're not really afraid of anything. And so it's because a person's assured of where they live, assured of, what they, uh, of how they live and what they're believing in, what they're trusting in, doesn't mean anything. The Pharisees clearly didn't think they were in trouble. They had complete assurance of salvation. Our father's Abraham. What is their do- And man, we're more religious than anyone. What do we have to worry about? And yet, Jesus, the one who knows man, knows what's in man, needs no testimony about man, said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Some of Jesus' most scathing comments, some of Jesus' most scathing rebukes were to the religious. As, as one who is religious, right? There can be a true religion, James says, and so not all religion's bad. There can be a true, genuine religion. It, it's, it, it's, I, I take those, those comments very, very seriously. How difficult it is for the rich to be saved? As the Gospels communicate, I take very seriously because why? We're, we're in one of the richest nations in the history of the world of all time. I don't just look at others and condemn them. I, I examine my own heart and life with those statements. And so in this passage, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, on 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? What are they communicating? And we're assured of our salvation. Our one-time profession, our intellectual knowledge gave us assurance. Don't you always preach, preach preachers that once saved, always saved? No, we preach when saved. Always saved. Genuine faith is more than visible morality. Visible morality. Just because we do right things doesn't mean we do them with the right motives. I oftentimes share about my own testimony growing up. When things can be difficult around, you don't want to rock the boat. When spankings, when you get spankings and not just timeouts, you don't want to rock the boat. Let's go. Some of our maybe our older members remember this. Probably our younger generation will have no idea what I'm talking about. But when they encourage you to go pick out your own switch, and can I get a witness? Anybody? Right? You're like uh, a twig, right? It's like blade of grass. You just wear me out, mom. Here you go. Just wear me out with this blade of grass. I'll take it. Right? You don't want to do that. You only takes once, and then you realize probably you need to get something a little larger than that. That didn't go well for me, right? Or belts at the time, right? And so you begin to be disappointed in certain ways, and you begin to realize, uh, I don't want that, so I will conform. If you're a pleaser, some of us in this room are our own makeup. We, we view life or natural to... Uh, natural, more natural bent to be people pleasers than others. And so many times it, you, that child doesn't really give you too much lip or trouble or any harm in any way. They easily modify their behavior. You just look at them cross and they begin to tear up and cry, right? And others, you can beat them half to death and they're like, they still won't comply whatsoever, right? Strong-spirited. But for those who... Like, that was my testimony. I was a pleaser. Didn't want to cause trouble. Didn't want to rock the boat. There's enough issues going on that I, that's not, I don't need to create more. And it gives the appearance that there's godliness. 
But if you ask my motivation, it wasn't because I loved Jesus. I loved not getting what? Spanked. I love not causing problems. I love not being the center of attention. You take someone who's introverted, people please a variety of things. There's a variety of motivations that go on that gives the appearance of loving good when they just hate evil or evil that would become befall on them, right? And the motivation isn't one that would be for the glory of God. And so visible morality is not enough. And do mighty works in your name. People walk around all the time, preachers of all sorts, walk around claiming visible morality for God. And Jesus says it's not enough. And then lastly, genuine faith is more than religious activity. Going to church, reading your Bible, being kind to others, a variety of other things. Can that, can that mean? Can it be a depiction? Can it be a characteristic of, of genuine saving faith? Sure. But these neither confirm nor deny those. And that's what those said. Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Religious activity does not neither confirm nor deny genuine saving faith. So then let's look lastly, and we'll do this quickly. Attributes of genuine saving faith in Jesus. What can then help you? You may be thinking this morning, it's like, oh, you've done a great job of undermining that I might feel like I'm a Christian. Uh, appreciate that. Um, but... I don't want to walk out of here completely terrified and ruin Mother's Day because I'm concerned about my faith. Let me just tell you, if you've got a godly mother, she would be happy to talk to you about genuine saving faith. Uh, nothing would be more pleasing to her than to know that you are soundly saved. And so let's look at attributes of genuine saving faith in Jesus. Number one, it begins with a love for God. A love for God. Many who are approaching Jesus want Jesus, something from Jesus, and not Jesus himself. You'll continue to see this again and again and again. Many hate Jesus because of what he's taken away from them. John chapter 8, I believe, or John chapter 12, I think, uh, or 11, uh, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus because they're afraid Rome's going to come in and take away their power. Jesus is messing everything up, attacking their very religious structure. And so they, they don't like Jesus because of what he's taken away from them. Many love Jesus for what he's willing to give them. I can be healed of some kind of disease or sickness. I can be granted... Uh, uh, food that I didn't have to work for, this is around here you're teaching and you feed us? Who wouldn't want that? But a genuine love for God. It's what Luke 10, 27 says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Genuine love is not just a self-love, but a love for others as well, and primarily a love for God himself. Number two, genuine attributes of saving faith in Jesus is repentance from Sin. Repentance from sin. Here you see in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's what we're talking about this morning. We don't want to be deceived. So the first thing you've got to say is that I'm a sinner, right? If you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he which is God, he which is Jesus, is able to for, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because why? Jesus cannot lie. And so that's why it's important. That not only do you believe in Jesus, but there needs to be a self-denial. That you have, you trying to ruin, run your own life. You're trying to be master of your own life. We're only going to make a mess of things. As we talked about in our, our small group this morning, we need counsel. We need revelation from God. We're not smart in and of ourselves. We need uh, a different point of reference, right? And we need counsel from God. And so we need to love, have a love for God, a repentance from sin, a love for God's children. Love for God's children. So important here, 1 John 2, 9 and 10, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. This is what I don't understand when people say, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. I love Jesus, I don't love the church. I love my wife, but I don't love my wife. Love being married, I just don't love my wife. Makes no sense. How does that work? I love children, just not my children. Right? Not true, guys. I love each of you. It doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. And so in this, we're thinking through these statements. We've got to be able to think carefully about 
what we say. That's what we, we hear people say this all the time. I love Jesus. I just don't like religion. I don't like church gatherings. I don't like being with the body of Christ. I can just worship God freely in a variety of other ways other than being with his body. It's not at all what the scripture communicates or teaches. And so there's a love for God's children. Number four, it needs to be a love for God's word. A love for God's word. It should be a desire for the Bible. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, they may grow thereby. The Bible is communicating there and teaching us that just as children naturally, uh, infants naturally crave milk, so a Christian, one who's genuinely, soundly saved, will, will desire the word of God. And we may grow thereby. That's what John chapter 8, 31 and 32 says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will abide in my word. That's why those parable of the soils again. That's why only the last soil is a genuine follower. Why? Because they ab- abided in the word until they were mature and bore fruit. What does that fruit look like? It's number five, obedience to God's word. Now you have a love for it, a desire for it, but then you actually obey what you read. That's what's always plaguing to me when somebody would say, oh, listen, our pastor, man, he slayed us this morning. It was so, man, it was so good. He just stepped all over our toes. And then I go, well, what was it on? And they shared with me briefly. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? And it's like this blank kind of look on their face. And this is what exactly James is warning of. This is exactly what Jesus was warning. James would say, do not be forgetful hearers, but be doers of the word. That's what Jesus said. Not only says to me, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. Now, these are the, the, the statements that Jesus would say. Who hears these words? There will be the ones who are my disciples, who abides in my word, who remains in my word. So Jesus said uh, to those who, Jews who have believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. So it should be not only a, a love for God's word, but then an obedience to God's word. Listen to the obedience here. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If you do what I command you. If anyone who does not abide in me and, uh, and I, or, uh, um, sorry, verse 5, uh, I am the vine, you are the branch. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So God's word is what leads us not only to love it and to know it, but then to obey it. So we need obedience to God's word. And three more. There needs to be a display of the fruit of the spirit. When I have confidence that you're a Christian, do you see fruit? Once again, we've been talking about this much, about the fruit of the Spirit, what, or the fruits. So what is it like? Well, one would be the fruit of the Spirit. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Nine characteristics you should be looking for. So if you're looking for, uh, uh, for all those that are single in here, if you're looking for a spouse, the Bible says, marry whomever you wish as long as they're in the Lord. Well, how do you know if they're in the Lord? Simply not a one-time profession, right? An intellectual knowledge, a certain salvation, visible morality, religious activity, because that doesn't either confirm or deny. So one of the ways you could begin to look at the list that we have. Do they have a love for God, repentance from sin, love for God's children, love for God's word, obedience to God's word, and do they manifest the nine fruit of the Spirit? Are they loving? They love others. They love the body. They love their mother. Good way to observe, on Mother's Day to begin looking at that. How do they treat their mom? Stepmom. How to treat their grandmother, grandmothers, if both are still living. Are they loving to others? Even to their enemies? Are they full of joy? One of the things that attracted my wife and I to ourselves is just through the Spirit as it relates to joy. Right? Just joyful people. Are they just complainers all the time, always looking for something negative? They don't have any joy in their life. They just walk around like Eeyore. Or peace. Are they full of peace? Because they're at peace with God, right? Romans chapter 5. And if God is for us, what can man do to us? And so, man, they're not walking around anxious, people pleasers, uh, have any issues there. Man, they're trusting the Lord in this. And so they're full of peace. Or are they full of anxiety? 
That's the opposite of the peace. Are they anxious and worried all the time, which the Bible would call sin? And not to pile on, but to show them you don't have to live that way. Are they long-suffering or patient toward others? Do they have a quick fuse that blows up in anger? Are they kind? Right? Just picture Snow White, right? Little birds just land on her finger, you know, Mary Poppins or something, and they're just butterflies are floating all around them. All these little creatures are running out of the woods are just hanging around them because they're just kind, right? Not that. You know what I'm saying. Are they just kind to people? Are they pleasant to people? Are they encouraging to people? Are they good? Are they faithful? Are they gentle? Do they demonstrate self-control that they can... Their, their emotions aren't all out of, out of control. These are all fruits and evidences of a genuine follower of Christ. And two more. Separation from the world. 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? Once again, it's a picture of the opposite of the thorny ground. Right? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked it out. So are they separated from this world? And do they have a devotion to God's glory? Are they devoted to the things that bring God glory? This was the motivation, the question of motivation that I spoke of earlier. Yes, they might do, have visible morality, but are they doing it for the right reasons? Are they doing it for the glory of God or for self-preservation? And this is key. You've got to be able to ask more questions there. And so whether First Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, the most mundane things of your life do all to the glory of God. And so here... It's just a, a means for us to be able to look at genuine faith. Genuine faith. Self-examination for you and you love others to help them examine themselves. There can be an appearance of saving faith that's truly not accurate. So ultimately, they're, even though they have the appearance, it really is absent. And from that, there needs to be a warning against a false assurance and then look, begin to look at what it genuinely means to follow Christ, genuine attributes of saving faith in Christ. And so I pray that from John chapter 2, it's been a means to us to help us. Now, it's not just striving on your own to do so. The Bible says we need help. And that's where next week, John chapter 3, we're going to walk, walk through the story of Nicodemus, that we must be born again. It's not simply your own strength. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and we're going to try really hard. God does something to us that enables us to demonstrate genuine saving faith, and we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray together.